So I started writing memos to the Democrats about how to use moral psychology to win more elections. Um, and I would send these memos around to people. And as far as I know, nobody read them. I had no connections. Um, but I resolved to really study conservatives in order to help the Democrats win. Hello, I'm Giles Fraser and welcome to Confessions, a new podcast all about faith, ideas, philosophy, ethics. Every week I'll be joined by a guest to ask them what it is that makes them tick. I'll be digging down into their core beliefs and values to try and understand better who they are and what they're all about. And here today, bearing their soul to me in the stall in this first episode, is the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, was one of those books that sort of hit me with a the force of a sledgehammer, and uh, so many of the people I know have read it with sort of great profit, Jonathan. And um, so it's a delight to to have you here and just to shoot the breeze with you for um, half an hour or so. Um, the, the way in which we tend to, uh, we've, we've sort of like decided to sort of set up this podcast is we start talking about where you're from and mm -hmm. your background and something like that. Um, so perhaps you tell me something about your your upbringing, your childhood. And no, certainly, yeah. Because in, in this case, it is it is relevant. So thanks for having me on. Uh, what, what I've read about you uh, gives me uh, I, I have no idea what to expect, except <laughs> that it's likely to be fun. So let's just get started and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so I, I was uh, born and and uh, raised as a, it's sort of an absolutely stereotypical mo modern uh, upper middle class American Jew. I was my parents, my grandparents came from Russia and Poland, escaping pogroms. My my father was very poor and growing up in New York City. Um, I they my father was a successful attorney, moved up to Scarsdale, New York, a town that had been, um, you know, as they said, the uh, what was it the they didn't let the Jews in for so long that the Jews up and bought the place, something like that. So it's very much the, you know the American <laughs> right. story. Yeah. Um, and uh, went to Yale for college. Was was on the left. I ran a handgun control group. So I was always on the left. A very you know typical. Um, and were your parents on the left? Was that? Uh, yes. My my father would sort of waver back and forth, but my mother was very clearly on the left. And uh, you know my grandparents were socialist labor organizers. You know American Jews are very progressive on social issues in particular. Um, and so that's where I always was. And I also I the other relevant factor is that I became an atheist within a year or two of my bar mitzvah. I remember right. having arguments. With my, my best friend, whose father was a was a reverend, uh, and I was taking the atheist side, and so I'm exactly the sort of kid who would have become a new atheist. Yeah, you know, when all the Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins books came out, I was very hostile to religion throughout my teens and twenties. Um, but okay, so that's one line, and the, but the, the other line that then intersects with it is that I happened to pick moral psychology as my topic in graduate school. I, I I majored in philosophy undergrad and then went to uh, uh, the University of Pennsylvania for my PhD. And while there, I, I took a class from a wonderful anthropologist, Alan Fisk, who had me had us all read ethnographies, uh, you know, book-length stories of other cultures, and that just completely blew my mind that morality could be so different, yet at the same time, it's all clearly built out of the same building blocks. Like you see... You see, you know, the regulation of menstruation and, and sex taboos, and they're often so similar uh, in the Old Testament, in the Book of Manu, in, 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 um, uh, in the Quran. So I thought, wow, there's something really deep psychological here. And that's been my quest ever since then, ever since the, the late 80s, is what are the building blocks of human morality? And how are they put together into an actual 
uh, an actual cultural morality. Um, so all that time, I'm still I'm still on the left, um, and then I get a fellowship. I do a, uh, um, a postdoc at the University of Chicago with Richard Schwader, an anthropologist who really changed my life. And uh, while working with him, I got a fellowship to study in India, uh, and that's what really did it for me. Was, right. Because, you know, if I had, like, I could easily have been very offended at how sex segregated and religious and the inequality. I mean, you know, a lot of Americans travel to India and are, are offended by certain things. Um, but that didn't happen to me because I was really trying to understand their world from the inside. And Schwader helped me. Moral psychology helped me. Uh, that's where I began to understand what a, what a, a world so saturated with meaning, where people have roles to play. What does it look like? What are they trying to do? And so once I understood that, I literally came home in 1993. I only spent three months there. I came home, and all of a sudden, I could, for the first time ever, understand the religious right in my own right. country. So right, that was right, the breakthrough right. for me. Right, right, right. And and is the 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 key thing that that you discovered, as it were, I'm asking you. This is mm-hmm. not telling you. Um, is is that there's something beyond. The sort of harm morality. That the morality is yeah. more than just a question, a sort of mm-hmm. utilitarian question of harm and so forth. There are other sort of components to it. Yeah, exactly. And so it's really it was exactly like for any listeners who read the book Flatland, really one of the one of the best books. Oh, you oh okay. No, you, I don't oh, know. you would you would love this book. Okay. It's a novel about mathematical char- about geometric characters written by an English mathematician who might have who clearly has some Christian background too. It's about a two-dimensional creature who's visited by a three-dimensional creature. And if you live on mm. a on a plane and a three a, a sphere visits you all you see is a circle and the three-dimensional cr- character tries to explain what it is to come from above and he this two-dimensional can't get it you mean north south east or west there's no such thing as above uh, and he doesn't understand until the three-dimensional creature takes the two-dimensional creature down to the world of the one-dimensional creatures and the one anyway it's this yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. wonderful metaphor yeah, worked yeah. out about how you just there's certain dimensions you can't understand and so going to india while reading a lot of anthropology and being as open and tolerant as i could that for me was like being dragged into the third dimension. Yeah. Um, I realized that my progressive morality based on the idea of really just harm and fairness, that's it, that's what morality is, um, that there are normative questions like, okay, is that, is that the best morality? But you can't even address those unless you know what the other moralities yeah. are. And I didn't know it until yeah. I was in my 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, that so you you use the metaphor of taste, don't you? As as taste, mm-hmm. as the sort of five different taste sensors, yeah. and that roughly those on the left get about three of them, and that, that those on the right generally use another couple. Oh, that's right. Um, so what I've always been trying to do, I was in graduate school. I was really knocked over by two two powerful ideas. One is anthropology, or, or the, the, a vision of cultures being variable. The other is evolutionary psychology, uh, the recognition that we are evolved creatures, our brains evolved just as surely as our hands did. And so how do you fit those together? And the metaphor, I love metaphors, I'm probably going to dump way too many of them on yeah. here, but, <laughs> but the metaphor that I came up with is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, morality is like language, you know, it's got a grammar. No, 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 I don't think that's a good metaphor. The best metaphor is taste. So if you're a human being, you have five different kinds of taste receptor on your tongue, and they're there because of our evolutionary history. They're sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and umami, or meat. Basically, what you'd expect if your ancestors were fructivores who also ate meat. You have what you need to find the right food sources. Uh, and, and human beings like sweet all over the world, but our cuisines are different. So how does that happen? Well, you need to look at at, at the local resources, the cultural history. So it's the same thing for morality. So we all we're all mammals. We all 
have all kinds of software that go along with our hardware for raising, for bearing our young live and then nurturing them for more than a decade. So care and compassion, we all have it. And what I found empirically um, is if you look at the protest signs at left-wing rallies, and so in my talks I show photos from Occupy Wall Street, there's a lot. It's not just about fairness. It's actually a lot about compassion, love. Um, so you know, people on the right love their children and dogs too, but that's not. they don't talk about their political morality that way. Um, so care, the next one is fairness, which can either be proportionality or equality, depending on which side of the spectrum yep. you're on. Um, liberty is the third. Um, loyalty, group loyalty is the fourth. Uh, authority uh, versus subversion is the fifth. And the sixth is sanctity versus degradation. <clears throat> now, there are more than these six, but if you know these six, it's like a set of magic glasses with all these re refracting prisms. You look at all the weird stuff that comes up in the news, like, why are people upset about this? Or I can't believe they said, you know... And you look at this, you always see these six taste receptors being activated or denied. Yeah. And uh, those who are more progressive tend not to get things the, right. like... Loyalty, authority, and sanctity. That's right. Yes. There are left-wing versions, especially of sanctity. Um, but, you know, um, there's that wonderful, uh, um, what is it? The, there's a Monty Python skit of, uh, from Life of Brian where, you know, we're the people's liberation front of Judea. Oh, yeah. no, we don't talk to the liberation right. front of the Ju Judean people, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the left tends to not do group loyalty as well. It tends to be more like herding cats. Yeah. Um, the right tends to be better at coming together to fight a common enemy. Yeah. Not in this country at the moment, by the way. <laughs> well, okay, that's, yeah. May you live in interesting politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm interested in disgust and, and that side of things because uh, you famously asked the, the question, or the question is associated with you about um, having sex with a, you know, a, a chicken that you buy in the supermarket. Yes, that's right. And, and this, is, this is a sort of great moral question because um, the, there's no obvious way in which you can cash out why that's wrong in terms of harm or terms of justice and fairness the chicken's dead yeah. um so there's no but actually there is a sort of visceral and visceral is mm -hmm. you know a word i'd associate with yes. you but there's a visceral sort of sense that there is something wrong about this yes that's right so if you think about human beings as creatures that evolved to live in a certain way and when the early explorers from europe went around the world they found that wherever they went people tended to have rites where they danced around a campfire to rhythmic music while painting their bodies and making certain things sacred. So we evolved, I think, for small-scale religion, and we have a sense of sacralization. We worship things together that binds us together. Um, as we develop um, a, a, a money-based economy, as we trade, morality thins out, and it, it sort of narrows down to just I won't hurt you, you don't hurt me, we can make a deal, we honor our contracts. That's basically it. Um, and so you find that more in, you know, in Amsterdam or London or great trading capitals uh, uh, hundreds of years ago is where that morality first comes to be. But the, the, the mental circuits to do all the primitive stuff, the sanctity stuff, the ritual stuff, they're still in there. Um, they're still in there. And boy, can you see it if you look at sporting contests, if you look at college football games in the United States, you still see that stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of an indirect way of explaining why I asked hundreds and hundreds of people what they thought about a man who has sex with a chicken carcass and then cooks it and eats it. And the reason is because I wanted to really, what I found was whenever I would interview people about things that seem to violate taboos, they would always find a harm-based reason. They'd say, oh, no, yep. you know, well, it's wrong to do that because someone will take offense, they'll be upset. <clears throat> and so I wanted something that violated a food taboo and a sex taboo and had no witness and no possible harm. And what I found is that in, in doing that chicken story, well-educated college students would generally say, well, it's disgusting, 
but you know, it doesn't mean it's wrong. I mean, if he's not hurting anyone, and yeah. it is recycling, so I guess that's okay. <laughs> yeah, no one literally said that. Um, so, but that was one out of twelve groups in my study. Um, it was done in Brazil and the U.S. Two two Brazilian cities and Philadelphia across social classes across age. Everybody else, or almost everybody else, acted as though if it's disgusting, that is a reason to say that it's wrong. And so I think we have to recognize that modern secular progressive moralities are at least unique in separating disgust from moral judgment. Now, not entirely. Nobody can do it entirely. Um, but most of the world thinks that things that are degrading, things that pollute the spirit, that are incompatible with our spiritual nature, most people on earth think that that is morally wrong. Yeah. Though, though there is a, there's a debate about, you know, some, the, the, the sort of phrase, the, the wisdom of disgust the or wisdom repug- of repugnance, re- yes. wisdom of repugnance yes. um, which is associated with the with the right really yes, correct. and you feel i you know you read someone like martha nussbaum sort of wrestling mm-hmm. with a phrase yeah. like this and trying to make some sense of it and both feeling the the pull of it but also not really wanting to you know wanting not wanting to endorse it either because well, of course right. repu- repugnance is also the repugnance of um, I don't know, mixed marriages and things mm-hmm. like this as well. So. That's right. So that's the conundrum. So the phrase was coined by Leon Cass, yes. who is considered to be a conservative ethicist um, in the United States. And um, he originally, uh, he had been opposed to in vitro fertilization and various other practices that sort of uh, you know, changed conception and our conceptions of family and life away from more traditional notions. And so on each particular one, where we've had innovations that really benefit people, like in vitro fertilization, well, I think one can say, well, you know, that wisdom was wrong. And even if it creeped us out at first, it's a very good thing that we got over it. And obviously for gay marriage, for all sorts of reasons. So I would never say there's a wisdom of repugnance that cannot be questioned. I would never say that. But the other extreme is to say, let's totally ignore that. Let's not, let's just reduce morality to if it feels good and doesn't hurt anyone, do it. And I think that we end up, if you follow that, we end up in a very thin world where people's spiritual needs are not satisfied. And I think, quite frankly, they're much more open to cults, uh, charismatic leaders, and demagogues. The, the, the liberal in you, it sounds like if there's a, if there's a clash between the uh, the harm based principle and the repugnance as it were based principle that the harm one <clears throat> trumps it is that right well in in general in any in any specific instance okay you know what i'm going to bring out my favorite concept from the righteous mind which nobody like literally zero people have mentioned or quoted oh come on okay i, I can try it with you because you have an anthropology background so i called it durkheimian utilitarianism right what i mean by that is i think that social policy you know if you're the government in the uk or the us and you represent the people of course your policies have to aim for the maximum good um, as a first principle you i think public policy should be broadly utilitarian yeah uh, that doesn't mean that individuals have yeah. to live their lives as utilitarians, but public policy, I yeah. think, should be broadly utilitarian. Yeah. The problem is when you get utilitarians <clears throat> making policy, they tend not to have a, a, a full understanding of human nature. They tend to have a very thin conception. They measure more of a Benthamite conception about utiles or, um, you know, this will lead to this many ounces of pleasure. And yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so, you know, what? so the, the view I came up with in The Righteous Mind is, okay, you can, be, you can be a utilitarian policymaker as long as you've read Emile Durkheim, as long as you understand stand, as Durkheim did when he was trying to help France secularize its schools. You can't just pull the religion out of the schools and give, put nothing else back. You have to have something that supports a sense of authority and a sense of belonging. And that's what I think social engineers often don't 
don't recognize as their re-engineering institutions. If you read Peter Singer and someone that, you know, from on that extreme as a utilitarian, and uh, I was doing, I had a conversation with him not that long ago uh, about uh, where you should give, where you should give your money, and so forth. And you know, if, if, if you go for if you go for Peter Silly, you never you never prioritise your family, you never prioritise those close to you. Um, in the end, I think he'd probably want to uh, give all his money to liberating chickens from chicken farms. I mean, I think that's probably in, mm. on a utilitarian calculus that's where he'd end up. Yeah. And there's a part of me that goes, you know, that I'm sorry, my family is a part of. You know, there's something closer to me than, than exactly. this utilitarian no, that's right. calculation that's a great can, really, that can really understand. That's a perfect example. I'm very fond of, of Peter Singer personally. Yep. I, I spent a year at Princeton. I, I, I'm very fond of the man. But that's the perfect example that if you um, – uh, I can understand his arguments, his logical arguments for increasing utility. But what kind of world would you rather live in, one in which we all – give to uh, you know chickens or people far away until everything is even or a world in which um, we have family attachments and we honor those attachments and we also try to help those far away um, but I think it is not really a human world one in which we all calculate the maximum benefit we could do and so again public policy I think should be utilitarian broadly but I yeah. don't think I don't want to live in a world where everybody is utilitarian I nearly said to him, you must give rubbish Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> no justification for giving your kids nice Christmas presents. Yeah, that's presents. right. That's right. Well, <laughs> give them a voucher to give to a charity. So um, one of, the, one of the, um, the things about The Righteous Mind is that um, it reads like advice um, from a sort of friendly leftist to other leftists. Yes, that's how it. Yep. To 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 <clears throat> slightly get their act together when it comes to um, campaigning for broadly progressive uh, agenda. Yeah, that's how the book began. Um, the origins of the book. So I, here I was studying how morality varies across cultures. I, I was working in Brazil and India, and and I found that social class was even bigger. Um, and then. Um, George W. Bush uh, defeated uh, Al Gore in 2000. Uh, Gore should have won in a landslide, and I couldn't stand it. Gore had no idea how to talk about morality. So, okay, I go on with my life. I just met the woman who became my wife. We're getting married. We're doing our, you know, our thing. And then in 2004, John Kerry loses to George W. Bush. And once again, the Democrat has no idea how to talk about morality, and the Republicans do. So I started writing memos to the Democrats about how to use moral psychology to win more elections. Um, and I would send these memos around to people. And as far as I know, nobody read them. I had no connections. Um, but I resolved to really study conservatives in order to help the Democrats win. Um, that's a problem we have in the American Academy. You may have it here. That because everyone is on the left pretty much in the social sciences and humanities at least, uh, almost everyone's on the left. And so um, I was going to use my work to help one side. And um, in the process... I discovered that there is more than one side. I mean, I've never become a conservative, but I now see that things are a lot more complicated, and any system that's charged with finding truth must have viewpoint diversity. You, you can't understand things until you listen to your critics and your, and your opponents. You smell like you've, I mean, you know, you have moved a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I've moved in that I'm not a partisan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never voted for a Republican. I, I, I'm horrified by, by my... my um, I, I can't even say the words. <laughs> yeah, can you say, can't the, even word? say the words? My I'm, president. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm by, by the president of the United States. I'm horrified by him. So in that sense, but, but no, I don't... It's I mean, not a I man feel... who knows how to talk about morality, though. I mean, you know, you wouldn't say that... that I mean, in terms of 
uh, in terms of the the you know that there was a, there was there's a part of the right that uses the language of morality that the left doesn't. This is not a case with Trump, is it? Well, so Trump is a very interesting case. Um, in that he has a he has a kind of a morality which it's, I don't I don't call it a moral foundation but maybe it is you do find the idea often that might makes right or a morality of strength uh, so I didn't consider that to be a moral foundation Trump does have a worldview he does see people as good and evil as enemies and allies I think it's quite striking that he has no friends as far as I know I don't think he has any friends that he's brought with him through different stages of his life so I think he has a lot of problems with his personal morality but he is not. A man, he is not a psychopath. That is, he is not a person who has no sense of that there is a moral order. He does have one. I, you know, he does horrible things with it, but he's very moralistic in his way. I never quite understood whether he has, he, he has that sort of part, part of him sounds a bit like a communitarian when he talks about the sort of the nation and the us and so forth. And yet he is also this sort of, you know... Um, New York businessman who's, you know, with, with this yeah. sort of very individualistic me, me, me type of thing. And well, I, but yeah, the I tension between the yeah. I and the we. Except that I wouldn't, he, he's not like a New York businessman like Wall Street. He's more like the kind of guy who hung out with construction crews, mafia-influenced gangs, exactly. and is a tough guy. And so, you know, in some ways, that could actually be good on the world stage. No, I, I mean, a guy who knows how to, you know, would be, whereas, you know, I, I love Barack Obama, but he didn't have that kind of toughness. He wasn't necessarily cut out for a world of thugs. So if Trump was Machiavellian, if he could make a plan and stick with it and use devious means to attain his ends over a long-term period, he could actually be quite effective, as Richard Nixon was. Yeah. Um, but Trump, the, the general view of among psychologists I talk to is that the problem is that it's just narcissism. It's just everything revolves around him, and that makes for a bad leader and bad policy. Is there a... Uh, a sort of boiled down version of what the left could take away from your research mm -hmm. such that they could, you know, implement it? Or is it just unimplementable within a sort of broadly progressive... Oh, no, no. It's... Oh, my goodness. I mean, the whole book... The book began in that way. So a couple of pieces of advice. Um, one, recognize that we are all so limited, so prone to confirmation bias, that until you're exposed to the other side, you simply won't even know what they think. And so if you're tired of being surprised that the right does better than you thought, if you're tired of being surprised that voters aren't listening to your message, try listening to the other side. A huge problem that the left has in the United States um, is that as it moved out of the off the shop floor, off of the off of the sort of the, the workers and the factory line and the farms, as it moved into the universities yeah. in Hollywood and New York, San Francisco, um, it lost touch. It, it encased itself in a bubble. Um, and so this is Mark Lilla's argument in, yeah. in The Once and Future Liberal. So the first thing is have some epistemological humility. Do what's right for yourself to make yourself smarter. Get out of the bubble, expose yourself, read more, listen to your critics. That's the first thing. If you do that, you'll make fewer mistakes. You'll, you'll commit less sacrilege. That's what got me to get involved in politics was I kept seeing Democrats saying things, um, you know, like, uh, you know, like not wearing a flag pin and, and just things like simple things. You know, if you're going to campaign for president, you need to show that you are the high priest of the civil religion. I yes, know that's a yes, phrase yes, that I've, I've yeah, seen, yeah, I've seen yeah. you use. Um, so, you know, I think you have to at least, I'm not saying the Democrats need to change what they think is right and wrong, but I, I do think that they suffer from being uh, uh, too closed off in a closed epistemic world. And the big problem we have now in America and many other places is the masses are just fed up with the elites. And yeah. anybody who seems to be lecturing down <clears throat> to them without understanding them, um, we're coming apart in America not by state, but by the top metropolises versus the rural areas. 
uh, and the Democrats and, feed into and this, that. I mean, this country, we're, we're following uh, that as well. I mean, that's right. well, one thing about Brexit is that um, it, it illustrates, I mean, on the left, it illustrates the sort of gap that's opened up between northern working class, for instance, and university towns, university educated, London type of people. And that gap is a massive problem for the left. That's right. It's happening in France very much the same way. So I think what we need to understand here, maybe this will be the transition to the, to the yeah, next, exactly to the next right. book. What we need to understand um, is that um, we're in a kind of a game of, it's not three-dimensional chess. It's rather that society is evolving on multiple dimensions. And there's an economic dimension in which globalization has put us all in the same all into the same market, and there are some common winners and losers. And the sort of the the working class, um, which was a big winner of the early, you know, the early post-war years, the 1940s and 50s and 60s, um, is not. So we have we have an increasing separation due to globalization. We also have social media is changing everything in all of our countries, sowing distrust, uh, amplifying polarization. So we're coming apart in ways that are very alarming. We need to th- rethink a lot of things if we're going to get more effective politics. And if we're going to be able to show that you know the Anglo-American model of democracy and, and free market can work. So this does take us quite neatly into your new book, because one of the um, important complaints that uh, the coddling of the American mind uh, highlights is the way in which our sort of universities have become cut off from and cut yes. themselves off from not just working class experience, but, but all sorts of experience that they find offensive Mm -hmm. and then there's this idea of how offense works to sort of um well i guess i mean it's obviously a reference to the closing of the american mind Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. so what happened um the the origin of the book is that a new moral culture emerged in the 2013 to 2014 academic year ideas that none of us had really seen that were quite surprising and hard to make sense of it was a combination of uh, students asking for safe spaces trigger warnings microaggression training acting as though books words ideas and speakers were not just wrong or offensive but dangerous dangerous if this person is allowed to speak people will be traumatized we, you have to protect us and a lot of us scratched our head like what on earth is going on um, and so my friend Greg Lukianoff, who runs the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, he, uh, he came to me to talk to me about this because he had suffered a suicidal depression in 2007. And when he learned CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, he learned how to question his thinking, how to catch himself d- making distortions like catastrophizing. And so then in 2013, 2014, he sees students asking for protections from speech, and they're catastrophizing, mind-reading, discounting the positives, black and white thinking, all the things he learned to not do. And so he thought, well, you know, if students are thinking this way, it's going to make them depressed and anxious. So he came to talk to me. I thought it was a great idea. I'd just begun to see the first traces of this in January, February of 2014. Um, it was really very fast-moving. Um, and so we wrote up this article in The Atlantic. It came out in the summer of 2015. And only after that did all hell break loose at American universities. Um, at Halloween, there were, there, was a, there were protests at Yale over, over the controversy of, not over whether anyone actually wore an offensive costume. I don't think anybody did. Uh, but there was a memo about whether students... Uh, Mexican hats or... Uh, is yeah. This, that's the sort of thing. Exactly. That sort of thing. Yeah. So it wasn't. It was a sort of a meta issue. It, it was not even over the costumes. It was whether it was appropriate for the university to tell students what they can wear. The 
the point is it escalated. There were widespread protests over many issues, um, and a new culture emerged, one in which there was no longer any sense of giving people the benefit of the doubt. It was rather what you might call a call-out culture. That is, whatever you say can and will be taken in the worst possible way. You will be accused of the worst possible thing, so watch what you say. Students now are walking on eggshells. Yeah. Professors are too. Yeah. And so the academic climate, it, it can't work if we're afraid. It can't work if we're afraid to raise objections, if we're afraid to, to, to speak openly and honestly. I'm not talking about yelling racial slurs. Obviously, there's no room for that in a, in a community of trust. Um, so you know, people, it's sort of a red herring, like, oh, free speech. Or should there be limits on free speech? I don't even want to talk about that. I just want to talk about what's the special community it takes to find truth together. And that has receded far into the distance since 2015 at our top schools. Is, is it? Is it? Uh, I, I've I've uh, read somewhere you say something like this: is that uh, the campus becomes uh, another sort of, I don't know, sort of temple space, as yes. it were, in which um, the presence of the pollution of um, you know ideas other mm -hmm. than a sort of liberal progressive ideas. Uh, is, isn't this another yep, sense of... The, doesn't yeah. this refer a bit back to the disgust it, Yes. Stuff? Oh, my God. What a nice connection fact. That's exactly it. Yeah. So so here's a puzzle. Um, all this stuff broke out on American campuses, and I thought it was just an American thing. But within one year, it was clear, no, this is a British thing, too. Yeah. And then it became clear it's also Canadian. Uh, and it's a little bit in Australia. And it, um, but it's not in France or Germany or oh, Scandinavia. Right? So, I mean, there's political correctness everywhere. But this idea that students are fragile, that they will be harmed, <clears throat> traumatized, this is a uniquely Anglo, Anglosphere thing. And I think, we don't know why. And again, it's changing so fast. It might yeah. emerge in France and Germany this year. Who knows? But I think one reason why it happens in the Anglosphere is that we all modeled our top universities on Oxford and Cambridge. So our top schools are all residential. You get, you get several hundred or several thousand 18 to 21-year-olds all together, with uh, um, uh, all now hyper-connected by social media. And very arcane ideas can emerge, like words are violence. Not just threats, but words that in any way question certain re revered assumptions. Those are not just wrong. They are, they are violent. Now, that's a very strange idea. And if, if you go home on the weekends or you go home at night, as they do at the top schools in France and Germany, your parents will laugh at you. Other people will laugh at you. So these ideas only really breed in very homogeneous, uh, far-left liberal arts colleges. Um, and so they're mostly in places like, well, you, you won't know the names of them here, but, but our top schools in New England, and actually we have data on this. If you make a map of where the shout-downs have occurred, where are speakers literally shouted down? You call it no platforming, but where they literally shouted down, it's almost all in the Northeast, at top schools in the Northeast, and right along the West Coast, the coastal strip. These are some of the most progressive, uh, um, farthest left parts of the country. It's not that there's something wrong with the left per se. It's that when you have moral and political homogeneity, when everyone thinks the same way, you have the conditions for orthodoxy and a witch hunt. And that's what's happened. Students act as though the campus is a place devoted to pursuing certain political goals, activist goals around uh, fighting for a, a small set of victims, about seven or so major victim groups. And any speaker, any person who questions the central assumptions is committing violence and must be banned. And is this, is this partly because of the... Uh the way in which um, these universities have set up their admissions policies. I mean, is, is there a is there a sense in which the um, the sort of every, any diversity you like, apart from class diversity, is 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 one of the analysis of, yeah. uh, of what's going on here? Uh, it, it probably has something to do with the admission requirements. Um, we do 
you know, as we try to do more than, you know, if, if you just go by tests, you end up, especially with East Asian and South Asian uh, students. And so our top schools are trying desperately to diversify. One of the ways they do that is they place more emphasis on the personal statement. And the best thing you can say in a personal statement is how you've been victimized and talk about that. So so, so we are rewarding it at many schools in a way. Um, another factor, and this is actually a major factor that I, I want to be sure to get into every time I talk about this because it's the one that people are shocked by and it's the most important one of all. And that is um, rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide began rising rapidly um, around 2012. And... Um, uh, it, this is basically right when, so this, we're talking about Gen Z or Gen Z, you'd say here. Um, it's not millennials. It's kids born in 1995 and after. Their childhood was very different than, say, kids born in 1992. They had social media from the time they were in middle school or you know, age 10, 11, 12. And it seems to have really done a number on them. There are other factors that contributed, but it's when this generation, when kids born in 1995, they first arrive on campus in 2013. That, I believe, is why this new culture suddenly appears, all, not all over the country, but in the Northeast and the West Coast. But presumably there must be something about their parents as well in terms of the way in which they were raised. I mean, there's a story, yes. in, your, there's a story in your book which I found so deeply shocking. In fact, I told my wife about this morning, she was horrified, about uh, a, a, a parents that, I haven't got this exactly right, you were saying, who kidnapped their own yeah. child yes. in order to, to illustrate to the that child that strangers danger are dangerous. Stranger danger. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. No, that's right. So, so the media has driven us insane in many ways. Um, in America, when I was growing up, we had a huge crime wave. Uh, I mean, it was really dangerous. People got mugged. Kids could get mugged. I mean, it was really dangerous. But yet still, kids would go outside and play. And we know when it gets dark, you come home. That's the way kids have always been raised. Kids were always let out around age six or seven. Uh, and you learn independence. You learn, you know, you fall down, you bang your knee, you limp home. You figure out how to deal with it. And we stopped doing that in the 1990s, just as our crime wave was ending. Nobody knew it at the time, but our crime rate was plummeting. I believe it's because we banned leaded gas around 1980, and so you have a whole generation growing up with, for the first time in decades, non-lead damaged mines. Um, but our crime rate plummets in the 90s, and just then we begin to tell our kids, stranger danger, don't talk to strangers. I mean, when I was growing up, you didn't have a smartphone. You had to ask strangers for help. Excuse me, sir, do you know how I get to the train station? You know, but but <clears throat> kids are taught strangers are dangerous, so don't go near them. They're taught if if I'm ever, if you're ever out and nobody's looking out for you, there's no adult, you might get abducted. And is this a, is this a collapse of trust in community? Yes, exactly. So, so the one place I found, as I've been traveling around, in northeast Iowa, I found that they still let their kids out at age six or seven uh, because they have so much trust, they don't even lock their doors. But if you live in a city or a suburb, um, the places that are sending kids to the top colleges, um, you have such a fear of strangers and abduction. So we taught kids the world is dangerous. I'll just share a funny stat. The rates of child abduction are so low um, in America, that if you were to leave your kid in a car and leave the window open and leave your kid unattended, before you would have to leave your kid there for seven hundred thousand years before the kid would be at risk of you know actually being abducted. My point is, it doesn't happen. But we started arresting parents who do it, literally arresting them. If a kid is caught playing in a park with no parent watching him at the age of nine, the parents can be arrested. Nine? Arrested. That's ridiculous. Yes, it's completely ridiculous. Yeah. Nine. Yep. He could be abducted. What? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not kidding you. So we're, we're insane. We're completely insane in my country so we've and what lost, we've done so to we've our kids. So we've lost a sense of 
so we lost a sense that you know the, the the village brings up the child type of thing. We don't have that in America. I mean, I mean in rural areas they might still do, but yes, okay. largely we've lost it. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, in those places. And in this country, too, as well, there's, I mean, it's partly, I imagine, to do with the fact that, you know, we move around all over the place so mm-hmm. much. So these sort of long-standing yeah. communities that, you know, you know the your grandparents have lived there yeah. and so forth, those sorts of situations where the, the, the place is a place that you trust and that mm-hmm. you know. That's right. It's very hard to run a good society or a successful democracy when you have plummeting trust in each other or in institutions. That's what we have in America, plummeting trust in institutions and each other. I just saw a statistic um, yeah, this morning. I was As I'm here in the UK for a week, I'm looking up what's going on here, and I found it was, I think, Girl Guides did a study, and they showed that the percentage of seven to nine-year-old girls who are let out, who can go out to the stores with their friends, dropped from something like you know 52% down to 41%, you know, which seems like a substantial drop. And I'm reading this, and I'm saying, Seven to nine-year-old girls were allowed to go to a store. Oh my God! Like in America, would be zero. Like nobody's no no nine-year-old kids are allowed out. I'm, I'm exaggerating my, a little bit. So what my my um one of my children uh, crossed London on the underground to go to primary school um, at I don't know ten mm-hmm. something like that on their own yeah. <laughs> nine maybe it yeah. was you know no ten. So, I mean, you know, oh, God, I'm, yeah. I'm quite proud of the fact that, mm-hmm. that I yeah. was a no, parent right. who allowed there, that. There's, there's very good reason to be, to be proud. Um, so what we're both experiencing in both of our countries, even though we, we have it worse, we ever protect more, but we're seeing a huge rise in depression, anxiety, suicide, especially for girls. It's overwhelming the girls. So I think what's happening here, what Greg and I think is happening here, is we began grossly overprotecting our kids, depriving them of play, giving them more and more classes, more and more academic preparation, even as young as age six and seven. Um, play is what they most need. Yeah. Play is the best thing. They yeah. Free play. I mean, unsupervised, no adult settling matters, no adult refereeing. That's what they most need. We've deprived them of it. So they, they don't know how to deal they with have risk. They play in safe spaces too that's as right. well, don't oh, they? Oh, yeah. No, that's right. In fact, no. They need to play in places that are a little bit dangerous. Yeah, no, Playgrounds, that's what I, yeah. no, I mean. Right. What I mean is... is oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, no, I'm right. not saying that. I agree, yeah. I agree they have to play. I didn't see the scare but, quotes around yeah, yeah, your words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the square right. quotes is like people are saying, oh, no, yeah. playgrounds have to be safe. They have to yeah. have all that spongy rubber exactly. stuff on the floor. And, exactly. And, and, and it's just like, no, they go and If kids can't get hurt on a playground, then they can't learn how to not get hurt. Yeah. And of course, you don't want fatal. You don't want yes. the risks of death. But they have. There have to be some risks. In California, I, I heard um, if there's a tree near a playground, all of the lower branches must be sawn off because, God forbid, a kid should climb a tree. So I'm just saying, you know, we we have to think about risk, but we've overdone it in America. We've produced a generation of students that have been overprotected. They're anti-fragile by nature. That is, they actually need some adversity. Kids, human beings need adversity to grow, um, and we've denied it to them. So this generation raised in the 90s, born after 1995, we've weakened them, and then they get social media. So even though the world they live in is so safe, the rates of accidental death are so low now, the rates of violence, even the rates of racism are much, much lower, but they're surrounded by a social media environment that's always putting in their face offenses, racism, threats, violence. So we're kind of we've kind of made them unprepared for a world, and then exposed them to a world that keeps putting virtual and so threats in their face. So that's part of what happens with safe spaces. That exactly, you have space, safe spaces to play, and then you expect safe spaces at university. Exactly, that's right. So thus far, I think we've agreed. I mean, I've agreed with you anyway. But th- I mean, I, I'm interested to know where you're going to go with your because you're writing a book at the moment mm-hmm. on capitalism, which I'm very, very interested in. Now, I'm I'm in I'm in I'm a sort of it's a sort of creature that doesn't really exist in the United States, which is to say, I'm religious, but I'm 
a socialist. So I sort of like, a, a, you know, I, I, I have yeah. my problems with, with capitalism. And, you know, when I, when I listen to what you're talking about, about the sort of collapse of community, part of how I would uh, analyse that would be with reference to capitalism, the greatest mm -hmm. agent of change the world has ever known, yes. moves people around all over the place, and, yeah. you know, free flows of capital, free flows of people and so forth. And these great freedoms have actually been what has um, deeply damaged uh, community from mm -hmm. from my perspective. So I would have yeah. a sort of, you know, there would be a sort of a capitalist analysis mm -hmm. of what you say. I, I don't. I'm, yeah. I suspect you're more of a liberal than I am. So that's. Uh, I'm yeah. interested to know what you think. Here. Sure. So when so when I moved to uh, NYU, New York University, to the Stern School of Business um, in 2011, I had no interest in business at the time. I just wanted to be in New York for a year when The Righteous Mind came out, and so. So I'm there, I'm teaching a course on business ethics and about all these bad things that businesses are doing. And I bring in the newspaper to show you know, every story in the front page of the New York Times business section is about the stuff we're talking about in this course and conflicts of interest and all sorts of sleazy behavior. And that very day, one mile south, I mean, Occupy Wall Street broke out. Uh. And so suddenly everyone's talking about business, capitalism, morality, and politics. And so even though I hadn't intended to stay, um, they offered me a job. And it was becoming really interesting. I mean, I started reading about capitalism. It's such an interesting history. NYU is a great university. New York's a great city. And so I said, you know, my wife and I said, hmm, we think we'll stay. Um, and as I began learning more and more, what I realized is there's this very negative story about capitalism, that it's exploitation. But at the same time, there's this amazingly positive story, and it can be expressed in a simple graph. You draw a straight line, and then at a certain point, it goes straight up. And that's basically GDP per capita, or human welfare. Uh, and uh, it's what Deirdre McCloskey calls the great enrichment. Once we get markets going, and um, uh, a rule of law, and ways that merchants can pool their money and take risks together, um, suddenly we're off to the races. And the percentage of human beings living in extreme poverty goes from 90% or more, in the, around 1800, um, down to just two or three years ago, we crossed 10%. For the first time in human history, less than 10% of all human beings are living in extreme poverty. So capitalism markets have also saved, uh, you know, made the world better for the poorest among us. So there's these two stories. How do you reconcile them? That's what the book is about. And, but there's, there's absolute poverty as well, but there's also relative poverty, which is to say that, you know, that even though the poorest um, uh, get richer, um, the rich get so much richer mm -hmm. that the gap between the rich and the poor gets exempt, uh, gets widened and widened and widened uh, such that uh, that you actually have a sense of we're not all in it together. That's right. So in the U.S. and the U.K., what you said is true, um, and in many Western countries, uh, in the U.S. more so than most. Um, if you look at inequality between countries, though, the opposite is true. In other words, it used to be that the U.S. and the U.K. dominated. It was so much richer than everyone else. And now because of once, once China and Asia adopted free markets, they're going up too. So the effects are complicated. And if we just look at our two countries, yes, all the criti criticism of capitalism are, are there. The formulation I'm playing with, so my, my book, the tentative title is Three Stories About Capitalism, The Moral Psychology of Economic Life. And I'm basically trying to do what I did in The Righteous Mind for politics, I'm trying to do for economics and business. Uh, you know, if you're an economist on the left versus an economist on the right, you find different facts to support, you know, is austerity the right response to a recession? Uh, it depends on which economics you, you read. Um, does raising the minimum wage help the working, the working class? It depends on which e e economist you read. 
Um, so the sort of the, te- the first formulation, as I've been traveling around and looking at different forms of capitalism, is um, any capitalist system has to has to attend to both dynamism and decency. And the Anglo-American form has said, well, let's go for dynamism, and then we'll, we'll, we'll put on some patches here and there for the decency. But, you know, if we sort of, let's just generate lots and lots of wealth, and then we'll do what we can. Um, the, um, the, you know, the Japanese or the, 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 um, the French or some others have placed much more emphasis on decency, uh, but then they get lower growth. They don't have as much dynamism or creativity. The, the area that seems to have done the best job balancing is Scandinavia. Most people seem to like Scandinavian capitalism. And they, I think, uh, they're, you know, many people in America think that they're socialist, which was not true at all. They were, they flirted with they're it for, no. but they're not. They're, they're actually free market capitalists who have really good safety nets. Yeah. And that, I think, is probably the best, that's probably the right form for, for most of our societies now. Help me out with this one, because it's uh, something I don't understand about the states. In a sense, you, 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 you could make a case that conservatives, true conservatives, should be extremely suspicious of capitalism. Because capitalism um, could be said to destroy social solidarity. And social solidarity is one of the things, you know, traditional communities and all other things, that you might want to say that a conservative wants to conserve. And, you know, capitalism is the greatest change agent the world yes. has ever known. So how, yeah. how do you get conservatives who want to conserve being so enthusiastic about the world's greatest change agent? That yeah. I don't get. No, it's, it's surprisingly easy. Uh, I read a wonderful economic historian or cultural historian named uh, Jerry Mueller um, who explained to me that um, there's, you can't really define conservatism. Conservatism arises as a reaction to the excesses of progressivism. And um, so uh, conservatives want to conserve whatever it is that's being threatened, that's being taken down. So if you have a country like the United States, which is founded on ideas of freedom, including economic freedom, if you have a country like the United States, which takes primary credit, along with Britain, for developing the modern capitalist free market society, well, then that's what you want to conserve. Oh, I see, I and see, And then I you see. get these newfangled uh, Eastern European, <clears throat> Russian, you know, Soviet, German, Marxist ideas coming in. That's the threat. And so, so that's the first thing, is that American and British conservatives can justly be proud of trying to conserve something that has brought the world great, great wealth and prosperity. Um, the second piece of it is that the parties that vote on the right are, are, are mixed psychologically, and same with the left. And so you have to distinguish between what uh, uh, Karen Stenner, a political scientist, calls laissez-faire conservatives. Yeah. We're not conservative at all. They're what you call in Europe liberals. liberals they yeah. believe in free trade. So they are not conservatives like you're talking about. They are libertarian. We call them libertarians. Yeah. So they vote on the right because they hate the welfare state and the, and the, and the left's overreach they, as they tea see it. Tea party types. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. So, so actually, in fact, right, the Tea Party, it turns out, was exactly a mix between the libertarians who didn't, you know, who are generally fine with gay marriage yeah. and fine with abortion. Yeah. So it's the libertarians who want government off our backs and the true social conservatives, what Stenner calls status quo conservatives. That is, they're the Burke, you know, Edmund Burke type conservatives yes. who say, don't change too fast. Wait, let's be careful. Let's not burn everything down. Like, caution. I get those. Those ones yeah, I like. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah to, I, extent, right, to the extent that you're a conservative in any way or have conservative yeah. elements, it's the Burkean conservative, yeah, not yeah. the laissez-faire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Well, um, 
Thank you very much, Jonathan Haidt, for talking to me. For um, When you come over here and you, you see what's going on in this country, I have oh to ask goodness. you a final question about Please, Brexit. Yeah. Because from an, from an outside perspective, and, you know, the, it plays into all the sorts of things that you're talking about here. How do you analyse what's going on here in Brexit? Oh, my. Well, you know, I think that the initial... Uh, the initial vote, um, I mean, I think the research shows that the dynamics were very similar to what was going on in America and across many countries, which is the, the globalists versus the nationalists. And so I, wrote an, uh, so I wrote an essay on this just before the Brexit vote. And then, I, and then Brexit happened and I got on a plane and I came over. I happened to be here a couple weeks after the vote. Um, and so uh, I, I have an essay. People can look it up. It's called something why and how nationalism beats globalism. And then the same thing happened in America. So the dynamics of the original are that. It's, it's the combination of, um, of, of uh, globalization changing the economy of a lot of people feeling left out, left behind. It's also in our two countries, we very much have this idea that we're a meritocracy and the merit is based on your test score. And if you got good test scores, you get to get into the top universities and get the top jobs. Needless to say, very few people get into those. And the people, and what's so pernicious about this kind of meritocracy is that the people at the top believe they earned it. Yes. They believe that they deserve to be at the top because they got the highest test scores. They're the smartest. Yeah. And I think um, the coastal elites, as we call them coastal elites, what yes. do you call them? The London, the, what do you, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, whatever your exactly word is. That. Yeah, it yeah. Is London. And so, you know, there's they something do... pernicious about meritocracy, isn't there? And David yeah. Goodhart's very good about this. Yes, and, and that's he right. Anywhere's about... versus somewhere. That's right. About, Goodhart really about, gets it. But also it. That's the right. way in which the way in which a meritocracy is not very good at distributing esteem, exactly. because it distributes that's esteem right. simply on the basis of how bloody clever you are, yeah. and that makes you feel like you sort of earned it and so forth. Yeah. But there's there's a great deal of people for whom, uh, and you know, I have them in church. That's probably what I what what I spend my life. Uh, celebrating is is those who maybe not have got the best test scores, but who's yeah. who re, who require and uh, and 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 should have considerable esteem, but it's not given to them mm -hmm. in this society. Yeah. That's right. Americans in particular do not begrudge people wealth. Americans do not have any resentment towards those who are rich, uh, because we generally have the sense that they earned it, they deserve it. So inequality yes, of outcomes but... <laughs> is not a problem if people have the sense that it is merited. Yeah. But increasingly. Um, uh, because of the way our system works, more and more people are seeing the system is corrupt. And so in both of our countries, there is a growing attitude of burn it down, just burn the whole damn thing down. And, you know, I don't know enough about the Brexit situation mm. to, to really be able to comment. But, I, you know, often what's happening is when you put it to a referendum, people aren't necessarily voting for a particular thing that they want. They're often voting against something that they hate at present. Um, so, again, I don't want to get involved in your internal no, affairs. No, 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 I understand. It's complicated, but, but the it psychology, is quite, yeah. it, it is quite, as you say, there was a, there's a, uh, a story about a friend of mine who was campaigning in a very tough um, uh uh, neighborhood in, in, in the north, in the Midlands, and uh, knocked on a door, was campaigning for Remain, to remain in the European Union, and said, uh, this, this woman came out in a really pretty rough estate, and uh, said, look, you've got a lot to lose from from uh, leaving the European Union. And she said, look around you. I could lose all of this. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, the, there's yeah. many people for whom the burn it down type of philosophy 
Um, is it just a way of saying, listen to me, you, I have been yeah. unattended to, I've been profoundly ignored, yeah. um, and you two will, you know, feel some of this. That's right. And in a way, that's really the way democracy is supposed to work. Neither of our countries have direct democracy where the people vote for specific policies. The most important feature of a successful mixed democracy is that the people have an option of saying no, that the people have an option of saying this isn't working, change. And so in both of our countries, many people did that. I don't know. There's not a clear way forward in either country for how to change, um, but I'm hopeful that we'll figure it out at some point. Jonathan Haidt, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Giles. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it, and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.